Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christoph Vinitz, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Vanessa Rodriguez Galindo about her new book, Madrid on the Move, Feeling Modern and Visually Aware in the 19th Century, recently published from Manchester University Press. Welcome, Professor Rodriguez. Good morning, Christoph. It's good to talk to you. Pleasure is mine. Professor Rodriguez teaches courses on modern Europe and cultural history at Florida International University in Miami. She's a cultural and visual historian interested in urban studies, print cultures in Spain and Latin America, transnationalism, and women's studies. She holds an MA in Metropolitan History from the Institute of Historical Research, University of London, and a PhD in the History of Art from UNED, UNED, the Universidad Nacional de Educación a Distancia, in Madrid. Her book examines visual culture, illustrated print media, and urban identities in 19th century Spain. It explores what being modern meant to people in their day and lives and reframes urban modernity from a global perspective. Uh, so please tell me about your project and your thesis and what is a global perspective because that is a, a new term for me. Uh, yeah, well, the, the book uh, tells the story of modernity and visual culture in in Madrid uh, during the, the late 19th century. And it charts how uh, journalists and commentators and graphic artists articulated the relationship between the local and the global across Madrid's visual cultures. So uh, I explore, like you mentioned, themes like urban change, metropolitan identities, and modernization through illustrated print culture. Uh, what, what is illustrated print culture? So uh, I mainly look at illustrated magazines, illustrated periodicals that were very popular in the period, but also other forms of print culture like maps, guidebooks, or even postcards and reproductions of early photography. And the, the key to, to understanding um, the, the subject of the book uh, is in that very long subtitle you, you mentioned, feeling modern and visually aware in the 19th century. And that's what the book um, studies. That's what the book does. It answers that, that question. What did modern, what did being modern mean to people in Madrid in that period? And uh, when, I, when I began this research almost, uh, I guess, over 10 years ago now, I realized that terms like modern, modernity, modernization were not really in use uh, in that period. And they were not used in the same way that, that, that we use these terms uh, today. And this is why I felt that it was, it was necessary to, to ask ourselves, what did being modern mean to people, mean to people then? And well, so, you, yeah. I, I was going to say, could you tell us, uh, for, the, for people who might not know, how Madrid did change at this time? Is it like places like the United States or England where people came to cities to, to work in factories and, and, and stuff like that? Or um, can you tell us what Madrid was like at the, in this period? Uh, uh, yeah, so Madrid um, during this period, so from, we're, we're talking about the 19th century, from the mid 1850s to, to, the, to the turn of, of the century, um, urbanization, technological innovations, and, and the development of a new mass culture, uh, especially what I'm looking at are reproductions of images. 
the combination of these of these factors of these shifts yield new forms of of spectatorship, of urban spectatorship, and experiencing city life. So uh, during this period, like you said, um, Madrid was similar to uh, two other two other cities in, for example, Britain or France. It under went a an urbanization process, so an, a, a process of urban reform and expansion that was very common in, in, in European capitals and main cities in the 19th century as a result of industrialization. So uh, we see that on the one hand, and we also see a population growth, right? Uh, it's during this period that people began to migrate from other surrounding regions to, uh, to cities. And Madrid also underwent this um, this process of urban expansion and migration, and that really changed the urban landscape of of Madrid. So, uh, on the one hand, we have a, this population growth that was a result of of immigration. So, we had migrants from different from different regions in Spain, mainly the north and and the south, and this changed the the landscape in different ways. For example. Uh, there were shanty towns that grew on the fringes of the city, and, and these were the uh, the migrants, the workers who were coming to the city to find work. And at the same time, so we have that kind of spontaneous expansion of the city, but also a planned uh, expansion. Those are kind of like the two sides of, of the same coin of urban growth, right? Um, and as for the planned planned reform and planned expansion uh, from the 1850s in Madrid, there were different urban projects that resulted from advances in, in, in engineering and, and, and technology as well. So for example, we have the uh, Canal de Isabel Segunda that brought uh, waters, water from, from the hinterland to, to Madrid, or one of the most important uh, urban projects of the time, which was the remodeling of the Puerta del Sol, which is uh, a central focal point in Madrid. Uh, other urban projects included uh, the ensanche, ensanche means uh, it's, uh, widening or growth, and that was a uh, a planned uh, a, 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 an urban plan that was intended to expand the city in order to accommodate the growing middle and upper classes to uh, uh, residential neighborhoods near the city center. And this in this way, the the center that was that was pretty congested at the time, um, there would be the idea was to free up that space. So this process of urbanization was that occurred in Madrid in this period. It was um, it, it wasn't really uh, significant in in terms of it wasn't unique. Uh, other cities in 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 Europe were were going through the same process. That really helps. Um, thank you for answering that. Uh, so you mentioned mass culture. Tell us a bit about the mass culture and. Uh, what it who who arranged it or was it spontaneous and what were its aims and how did it look? Yeah, so when we think about um, mass culture, it's a term we use a, a lot nowadays, right? We think of mass culture, we, we think of television or or cinema or or maybe now we think of uh, the internet and and other entertainment platforms. Um, but in in the nineteenth century, we have this new form of of mass culture, early mass culture, we could say. That is the uh, illustrated press, or or the illustrate, let's say, illustrated print media. Really, uh, so there were technological advances in the printing industry that allowed for images 
and uh, reproductions of images and words to be printed on the same page. And this really uh, led to a, a growth in the, in the print industry. And there were several uh, illustrated magazines and satirical periodicals in Madrid in the late 19th century. And so uh, along with the, this uh, popularity of the printed image on paper, there were also other forms of, of, of printed images like pamphlets, uh, broadsheets, posters, and these became very much a link to, to urban life. These images circulated within the capital. And not only that, many of these uh, illustrations in magazines and as well as in other forms of print culture, they, they focused on the city and on city life. And in many ways, reproduced images and city life became tied, uh, tied to each other. Uh, it's also during this period that uh, that the the law even contemplated just how powerful images had become. They were almost as powerful as as the printed word, even. So they kind of they gained the, the status not so much of um, they were considered artworks to a degree, but they gained the status of a vehicle of visual communication. Uh, uh, so their informative nature was um, was emphasized. And in this sense, even as I said before, what the, the law even contemplated the need to regulate these images because, because they, they were evolving and because they were, they were circulating within the public sphere. Well, your book is a history of um, printed media. It's also a wonderful example of printed media itself. And it shows many of the changes uh, on, of the time on the page. Uh, so what were some of the messages, perhaps, if that's the right word, or themes, or, or what is the spirit of the kind of things people might read for the first time in the late 19th century? Um, yeah, well, depending, there were there were different types of, of periodicals, right? Um, so there were these lavish illustrated uh, magazines that contained reproductions sometimes of artworks or of city views. And then we have there were a lot of satiric, satirical papers um, that were kind of a precursor to, to, to the comic strip. So these included uh, vignettes, caricatures of, of social types uh, of, of, of city scenes that were intended to, that were meant to be funny. Uh, so the kind of messages, for example, that, that we see in, in these illustrated periodicals is um, there's this idea of of wanting to bring images of the world to the reader. So, for example, panoramic views in illustrated papers were, 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 were really important. Uh, we have, you can see in, in Madrid's illustrated papers, panoramic views of Madrid, but also of other cities. And um, this, this interest in, in the panoramic view was, was very much um, the result of, of, certain ideas regarding city space in the 19th century and uh, new forms of, of visual spectatorship and, and even pastimes like uh, there were panoramas or cosmoramas. So there were different types of visual entertainment at the time. And the press reflected that. Uh, so there were uh, panoramic views that allowed that also allowed the reader to come to terms with this evolving cityscape. Um, and 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 see images of both their city and other cities from you could say you know the comfort of their of their own room and that was something new this idea of bringing the world to the reader 
um, was was a novelty. And in many ways, editors, they capitalized on that. They knew that, you know, that was something that 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 sold that that readers wanted to see. They wanted to see these images of, of faraway places. So that's one of the, the messages. And we see that especially uh, in the for example, in the first issues of some illustrated papers, they had kind of uh, the editors wrote a, a sort of a declaration of intent where they, you know, spoke of how important attracting the reader's eyes was to to appeal to their eye, and they did this through images. So that's one of the messages that we that we see. And then in, in Madrid's satirical press, there was this uh, there was um, because it was geared to to. Uh, I, well, the, the target was to to make you know readers laugh, really. So uh, these kind of magazines focused more on um, on modernization as well. But uh, at you know the the humoristic instances that could appear in public space, and these magazines were very much focused on interactions between men between women in public space. Who, who would read this? Would this be something for a, a urban and urbane uh, professional or shop owner kind of person? Or would somebody, a, a factory worker in a shanty town, look at these illustrations too? Is it, does it democratize the mass culture? Yeah, I would say these magazines, they were, they were mainly geared towards uh, a, a middle, class, middle upper class readership, a growing middle class uh, readership, the satirical magazines and uh, middle upper class uh, readership. However, it is true that we also see um, through in novels of the period how um, people of the popular classes were also using these these illustrations. They, they could cut illustrations from newspapers or even um, prints and they would use these to, to decorate their, you know, their barren walls. We don't have documents of of that we don't have documents of you know the quarters where where workers uh, lived, but we there are um, there are accounts in novels that show that the popular classes also had access to these to these images in different ways, of course. You you had um, a, an illustration that I remember noticing uh, in your discussion about the this new central space, the Puerta del Sol. Um, and it was called Escenas Matritenses from 1876. And it shows sort of this idea of many different social classes mixing together in the public square in the central plaza of the city. And I remember like that was 1876. And I compared it um, back to looking at like a Gustav uh, Caibot rainy city scape in the exact same time in Paris, where I kind of saw like people in top hats with umbrellas walking around, but I didn't see them mixing with the with the commoners that much. And, you know, I don't know much about art history myself, but I had this feeling that there was a, 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 a social mixing in, in this print. Um, so I could be mistaken, but is that a fair guess? It, yeah, it is. It, is. <laughs> it does show that, uh, yeah, I know the, the illustration you're talking about and it is, it, it is quite striking visually uh, it, because it shows the, the, I think it's Puerta del Sol, al atardecer, or something like that. So Puerta del Sol, you know, as the sun sets, with, which comes to say when everyone is taking a walk, right? When everyone is going for a stroll. So what that illustrator did was show everyone going for a stroll. So you have different uh, social classes, people, yeah, being bed men and top hats, also 
women wearing mantillas. So all these indicators of different uh, social class, women walking together with the chaperone, others walking alone, possibly um, going, walking home after a day of work. So uh, the image is, um, it, it does romanticize to a degree that time of the day and what the square looked like. But I think what the illustrator was also trying to do was uh, to give readers an image of the city, uh, of the square in one single glance. And that's an important aspect to keep in mind when we think about illustrators during uh, during this period. They were artists, but they were also reporters. They were also graphic reporters. And there was a discussion in the press uh, regarding to what degree what they drew was real and how how real how real it should it should be um we have, we have to think that although photography um there are already several photographic studios in madrid at this time but photography could not yet really capture the kind of rapid movement that that illustrator the hustle and bustle that illustrator was trying to draw uh and so illustrators their their work remained important because they seemed, um, many people, especially in, in, in these illustrated papers, editors believed that they were capturing a summary of reality, which is what that illustration is kind of, you know, trying to do to capture all these social classes. Maybe they weren't in the square at that certain specific time, but they were transiting through that square. And, and, that, and, and, and that's what, you know, that, that illustration depicts. But at the same time, there uh, was a debate about the Puerta del Sol, because in spite of the expansion that, that we talked about earlier, how you remember the, the in Sancho, how the, the city, there were certain uh, urbanization projects meant to, to, to empty the central areas like Puerta del Sol. Despite that, many people continued to, um, to walk through the square. There were, there were businesses there, uh, and, and it continued to be a focal point within the city. And urban commentators or urban planners, they 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 drew attention to this, um, and so that image also it reflects that kind of the difference between practice space and plan space, right? One thing is what urban planners intend to do with their plans, and something very different is what people actually end up doing, how they practice that space. So I think that image also um, it also points to 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 that to those two. Um, two ways of, of living in, in a place, right? Is it to be, uh, to be seen and to see and to just see what's going on? And are these people, uh, especially the new uh, immigrants to the big city, would they feel like they were madrileño or would they feel like they were, you know, outsiders visiting or something like that? Yeah, I think definitely this, the whole idea of, of seeing and, and, and being seen is is fundamental in in the 19th century and when uh, at a time when strolling becomes a a pastime and a, and a social necessity as well um so uh that that illustration also uh it also considers that aspect of of seeing of being seen and whether uh these newcomers to madrid did they feel that they were Madrileños. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I. I don't know if I have the answer to that question, but I would say that the local identity of Madrid at that time was very much informed by these migrants coming 
to to the city. Maybe perhaps the the perception of 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 local identity today in Madrid is, has been very much shaped by by those immigrants who came in that period of time. And uh, we see in the press there are a lot of references to. Um, to workers who came from Asturias or from Galicia, and how uh, they they you know how the kind of jobs that they carried out in the city. So there were uh, references to to that how to this new social fra- fabric that was um, that was shaping the city. You'll also explain uh, the spirit of walking, of intentional wandering, the the flaneur or uh, uh, of the. Uh, Paseante, flanear. Would you explain what is the um, what you call uh, on one thirty four gastronomia de los ojos? What's what's going on, and what is the spirit of walking around in the evening? Uh, yeah. So there, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time talking about walking, right? Strolling. Yes, it's something. It's something I like to do. It's the time of mine. Um, so. Uh, this whole theme of of strolling, um, there's a, a an archetype, a social type that you mentioned, the flaneur. Uh, he's a French archetype, and the flaneur was someone who walked the city and experienced urban life. And this figure was was um, was really developed by uh, Baudelaire, and and he has a lot of influence in in art history and material culture and, and urban history, and what the what makes the flaneur different from say the regular stroller is that he is uh, anonymous uh, in the crowd, and that these that you know he takes in his surroundings as a gastronomia de los ojos as you know the, the, these visual stimuli become kind of like food for his for his eyes right and this this model of flaneur has been contested by by historians by art historians. But what it does do is put put the you know the focus on this idea of walking and of really you know taking things in with your eyes. And what I realized was that in in this in Spain there was this debate about the flaneur uh, and how he how this person was different to you know other forms of walking that already existed in Spain like pasear or callejear. And uh, so we see this discussion about the, you know, some journalists are saying, do we need this new word? Is it different from the words that we already have? So they began to manipulate the word and say, well, it is different. So let's call it flanear. So they, they, they um, Hispanicize the, the, the French term. And uh, in the end, what, I mean, what that really, what they're really pointing to is that they, is that foreign influence was 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 reaching Madrid in that time, but that there were also there were already local practices in place that had to be considered. So it, it, this merging of the foreign and the local is, is is very interesting. To it's interesting to see how it played out and how journalists went about uh, defining defining that. So that's a great topic too of this top of of your work and. Um, it reminded me uh, how much of the 19th century was very Franco-centric, <laughs> which is from the 21st century, you know, American point of view. I, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you talk about Paris's unrivaled presence in, in, in the culture. Uh, t- tell, us, tell us a bit about 
was everyone looking to France and to Paris especially, and how did that play out for better or for worse um, in in the Madrid uh, uh, spirit, thought, consciousness? Uh, yeah, so you're right, France, uh, it, it does, it pops up a lot in, in the book, and I think there are two reasons for that. On the one hand, France is in art history and in urban history, France and, and Paris especially, you know, it's, it's kind of seen as the benchmark of modernity. And because so many of these important cultural critics wrote about Paris and, and much of what we understand as, as modernity today uh, is linked to, to, to Paris and probably, you know, artistic movements that we're all familiar with, like Impressionism. Um, so, I mean, when I started doing uh, research on this, on this book, I thought, well, I need to situate Spain within that debate, uh, not so much to compare Madrid to Paris, but to acknowledge the influence of, of these authors on, on the work of historians on the one hand. Uh, but it's also important to, to see how 19th century people understood the influence of France on the other. So, so it's, you know, it's on the one hand, we see France is important in, in historiography. But when I started going to the sources, I saw that it was also, it was very important at the time. Uh, France was, um, the, the urbanization process that occurred in France in the mid, um, in the mid 1800s under Haussmann was a model that, uh, or, or a reference at least for many other cities to follow. It was uh, one of the first plans of, of planned demolition and construction. And, and, uh, and Spanish papers were looking towards France, looking to see how that developed and asking themselves if that would happen in Madrid as well. So what really caught my attention was that it wasn't so much that, that Spanish commentators were looking to imitate what was going on in Paris. Rather, they were very aware of what was going on and they were asking themselves, well, what will happen here? How will that play out? Will we all end up being looking like Paris, or will we, you know, w- will we do something else? To what degree do we need this level of of new construction? So uh, that's one of the reasons that you know France uh, pops up because of this model of urbanization that they're kind of exporting to in in a way, and fashion, of course. And it's interesting to see that even other fa- um, foreign fashions like uh, British fashion or British terms. Uh, like Anglicisms, they reach Spain through France. So that, that's the kind of you know, circuit that, that existed at this, at this time. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about uh, imitation, right? It's more of a, a conscious awareness of these, of, of these processes and a creative uh, resistance or assimilation sometimes, and which kind of ties in with what you, one of your earlier questions about, about you know, what does global mean? Well, it's 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 acknowledging right these global circuits these these flows between countries that doesn't necessarily mean that you know we create homogeneous cultures but there there is this give and take it's it's a messy process of give and take assimilation resistance and what is true is that when it comes to products and commodities uh, these things oftentimes they do follow you know capitalist circuits we can't. Sometimes we can't escape that the, the power of, of, of the market, you know, of, of what becomes popular, fashion. Uh, but again, these, these, it's both the foreign and the local 
forces that kind of shaped mentalities and, and urban identities at that time in Madrid. Yeah, and you call it a, a thorny subject. Um, um, do you think that people resented uh, French influence or admired it or a little of both at the same time? And what, what, what would modernity be once you remove the French characteristics? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I don't <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I would say, yeah, that there was, there was some resistance there. I mean, there were uh, proponents, there were detractors. Um, but in the end, in the end, this was the window through which, you know, they were looking at the world. Um, the influence was there. So what, what do, what do we do with it? Um, and even if you do resist it, it's, you're still responding to that influence in some way, you know? Um, and if we take the French influence out of it, well, I, I don't know what would be, I don't know exactly what would be left, but that's, that's definitely another, another question to ask for another book. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll ask you one more unfair question. And that's only because a few months ago, I reread the sun also rises, which is not in your period. It's from 1926, and it's very young Ernest Hemingway's first book, and it's about an Anglo-American coterie of decadent literary types who travel from Paris to go see a bullfight in San Sebastian in, in northern Spain. Um, and what's interesting to me is how urbane and advanced their life in France is. Not that you know, and they sort of. Um, they're, they're foreigners, they're English speakers, they kind of do whatever they want. And then they go to Spain. And for him, it seemed to me, uh, rereading this after a long time, that he, he was having a very romantic experience with sort of more quiet, more slow, more um, wild, and I don't want to say primitive, but that's the word I'm trying to avoid. Uh, like Spain, like in, its, in, in, in all the good senses where you go fishing and you see bullfights and you sleep in the middle of the day because it's hot and you drink wine out of wine skins instead of glasses and, and things like that. Is that sort of um, very Franco-centric, very uh, Anglo-American idea that, that uh, Spain is this romantic hideaway sort of backwater place with, its, with all of its charms? Is that something that Spain is... Uh, resisting at this time is that a thorny stereotype uh, you know being being uh, classified in that way uh, already in the 19th century or is that just something he imposed in the 20th uh, yeah, yeah no that's it, it, that's really interesting all everything you said and, and no it's true that um there this this idea that Spain you know yes it is more primitive than its neighbors um, I would say that uh, that it's not something that Hemingway uh, just wrote. In fact, that it's this romantic idea of Spain has, has was around for centuries before then, even. And I read that book a long time ago. I read it in high school, but um, I, for me, it was is fascinating to see how Hemingway depicted the Spanish. Because I'm as I'm uh, as an American, I, I moved to to Spain when I was ten years old. So I was really interested, and I grew up between both countries, really, and I was really interested in seeing how Hemingway, how a fellow American would depict, you know, Spaniards. And um, and I was surprised by this romantic romantic view of, of of Spain with the bulls and all this. But at the same time, we have to say that this this exists, right? These these um, stereotypes they 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 become popular and they reach 
they, you know, they, they have such reach because they, they do exist. So I think it's important to keep in mind that this romantic idea of, of Spain that, that Hemingway writes about was already present in, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Romantic travelers, they, they traveled throughout Spain, um, throughout the South. There was, there was even this book, an illustrated book, by two um, French writers and illustrators, Doré and Davillier, and they, it called Viaje por España, and it was published in the 1860s. And for example, that book showed again this romantic, this romantic view of, of Spain. And I think there are two important issues there. And the one is that, and, and you mentioned it, how these foreign imaginaries affected perceptions of Spanishness for Spaniards. <laughs> Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't talk about that in the book. There are other books that do a great job at, at explaining that. But what I do see is and, and I, I do talk about this a bit, a bit, is that there was an awareness of, you know, what others, what the what other countries are saying about Spain. And I talk about a bit about this in the book, how, you know, some editors were they they criticized the fact that foreign illustrated papers depicted a picture of, of modern Madrid you know, like a, as a place where where you know, there were bullfights and this sort of thing. So there was already in the late 19th century this awareness that, you know, we have, this is our reputation, to what degree is is it fair, is it not, and, and, and how do we respond uh, to that? And another thing this brings to mind, this romantic view of Spain, is the importance of, of myths, right, of, of stereotypes, just how appealing... They are, be it racial, ethnic, social typecasting, and the importance of the of you know of the ro- of the romantic social type. It it also reached the the pages of uh, it, uh, illustrated print culture in, in Spain in in the nineteenth century. Even you know editors they capitalized on this because it was something so easy to read, right? And 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 this was a mechanism to to appeal to to readers in Spain as well. Thank you. thank you. I think that was a, a brilliant answer for a very unfair question. I'm going to ask you one that is fair. Would you describe what is costumbrismo and how it connects to nostalgia? Uh, yeah, so costumbrismo is, it, it's a, I, I, I talk about it in the book in, in, in the last two chapters. And costumbrismo was a literary uh a visual genre that uh, became popular in the 19th century. And it wasn't unique to Spain. Uh, Costumbrismo depicted social types, so uh, cuadros de costumbres, sketches of of Moors. And and this kind of literature existed across across Europe with with different names. So, for example, a costumbrista collection would consist of uh, 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 an anthology, a book with different chapters and different types. So, for example, with uh, street vendors, a water carrier, a seamstress, and each chapter would contain a brief description and and a, a, usually a, an image, a sketch of this of this uh, social type. These became very popular in the 1840s and 1850s in in Spain, in France, in Britain, and from and also in the Americas in in the later part of the the century. So um, the reason uh, costumbrismo 
was uh, became important in the late 19th century is that it kind of um, it created, I would say it was very much linked to uh, mass culture. And as you mentioned, it's costumbrismo is usually viewed as a it's been viewed as a nostalgic conservative view of the past, right? Because it it was a bit nostalgic. It, it implied looking at the past, looking at a bygone past. But at the same time, this visual language of, you know, of the social type um, was very easy to read. And it was therefore used in in the press. It had the ability to to function as a as a visual language that was easily understood. And this is, of course, one of the key traits of, of mass culture, right, of, of being able to to reach different types of audiences and costumerismo at the same time had um you know intercultural qualities that we associate with mass culture today it was it crossed different types of media it was in the press but it was also in uh, musical representations and and photography even and another important aspect about costumerismo is that uh, these kind of uh social types because they were grounded in this visual language that could be found already in the late 18th century, um, readers were very familiar with, with this kind of visual nomenclature, with, with you know, the different um, indicators that, you know, this is a social type, this type of, this person is, you know, you can identify the person's profession. Um, and we see these types in different, in different illustrated periodicals uh, across Europe at the time. So it's interesting to see that this kind of visual we could say international visual language was being created. And while someone in Madrid probably couldn't, you know, catch the, the nuances of a, a, a type, a street type in London, that person could, you know, tell that this was the language of costumbrismo, the language of the social type. So like uh, somebody in Spain might be a Picaro, but in France, he's a Gavroche. And in uh New York, he's some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, like newspaper selling huckster kind of kid, sort of, and that exists everywhere. Right. So those, those kind of, yeah, those visual indicators that they, they, they existed across in, 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 you know, in cities with, uh, with these, with this tradition, with the, with illustrated papers and this tradition of, of, of the uh, social Type and I mean this is really, uh, you know, when we talk about it, referring to the nineteenth century, it sounds perhaps very scholarly, but it, it's still it's still around today, right? Um, and what comes to my mind is uh, a blog that was very popular around ten, I guess it was ten years ago now, called Humans of of New York, and it was a photographer who went around the city of New York and captured. Uh, photographic. He, he made photographic portraits of the different peoples of of New York and posted them on this on this blog that became very very popular. And these were types, really, but he didn't caption them. And I think that's what made makes the difference. You know, when you don't pigeonhole someone, but at the same time, it, it became obvious to me that that um that that kind of formula, that visual formula, of portraits of people that I recognize that I you know I identify certain things in their background. It's easy to read, and it's still appealing to us even even nowadays i could i very much see that um is there is this a time where spain thinks of uh, itself as a global empire because i i study spain in the 16th century and i think the 
the sort of ideas about Spain that people um, struggle against is the um, is the black legend where all of Spain's imperial projects were decried by Protestant rivals uh, as um, with all the terrible things that we have probably tacked on to empire looking back now. And I think in this point of view from Spain is that that's unfair. Is that still the Spain we have at this moment where where there are foreign possessions or have they all been taken away and Spain is just a is just a country? Uh at the period we're looking at is it's right before 1898 so before the loss of of the of the last colony of 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 Cuba right which is a very dramatic moment in the history of Spain so we're looking at that you know moment right before right before then and i think that part of um as you mentioned uh as historians part of uh, what we look at in Spain and what i mean what i've what I find in sources like the press is that <clears throat> Spain is, to a degree, it's both, and I read this by in, in an article recently, and I thought it really explained explained it well, you know, the the position we, you know, how, I mean, how we look at Spain sometimes is that it's both periphery and, and center, right? Um, Spain viewed as, views itself sometimes as periphery, peripheral in Europe, but it was also the center of an empire. So reconciling those two you know those those two identities is is still very much part of how we study uh, Spain today. And in the in in the press, in the in the illustrated papers, in the illustrated print culture of the nineteenth century that that I look at, I kind of see a I would say a a self I don't want, I don't know if I want to say self centered Madrid, but to a degree uh, a city kind of trying to figure out where to position itself. Not so much in this, you know, in this transition between um, center and periphery, or but more trying to position itself as a as a, as a modern city, uh, as a modern city uh, within Europe. So very much looking at Europe at the time, and also um, acknowledging this 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 decline that 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 was obviously that was that was coming to an end really. That's so interesting. What are what are some of the favorite things you discovered in this ten year process, or what are some of the things that surprised you in your research? Um, I'd say, um, what really surprised me when I when I when I started doing this research ten years ago was that, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but that these terms, modernization and modernity, that we talk about all the time in art history and in material, you know, visual history and material culture, that they simply weren't common in that in that period. And it made me realize how, you know, sometimes what we write is anachronistic when, when we're using terms that mean something to us today, but they just didn't mean the same thing back then. So I think that's and that's kind of how the, the I, I departed on this on how the project departed, uh, going back to not the origins of the term, but trying to see what you know what these terms meant to people then, and and I realized that I didn't want to come to a conclusion, you know, to say Madrid is modern or Madrid is not modern. That's not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to see what try to figure what you know what how how cultural producers were were defining and redefining meanings associated to novelty. So that's one thing that that surprised me. It sounds very basic, right? This term wasn't in use, but. Um, that was a discovery to me, and I found it, for example, in fashion magazines, where where um, 
that were geared towards women and edited by women. And, and they used this term to refer to, to modernizing, to updating their garments. So I thought that was quite interesting. And they said um, modernizing? They said modernizing, yeah. Yeah. I guess because that also has mode, right? Fashion in it. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, and it, and it showed me that, I mean, it, it really shows that, you know, the way we think about modernized was, was obviously not, um, when, they, when they thought about modernizing, it was really using something that you had and to try to refigure it and, and, and do something else with it. So, uh, so that was something interesting that I saw. And, and another, uh, another discovery, I'm not sure it's a discovery really, but that I found was when I started this research, I, I started, uh, I was looking at the papers, you know, phys- physically going to the archive and, and looking at the papers, going through microfilm. And it took a long time. I'm, you know, <laughs> that's how we did research not so long ago, just, yeah. uh, and, and in the period of time, and I was doing, you know, reading and, and, and compiling, um, doing word searches and compiling my own, you know, databases. And, and in that fraction of time, towards the end of, the re- of my research, many of these periodicals became digitized. So it really, I mean, from, you know, doing this painstaking kind of archival work to finding all this on, to finding all these sources online, I kind of lived through that, you know, through that shift throughout the research. Um, and that was, it's, it's good and bad, right? Because it makes you go back, you rethink uh, what you, the work you've done so far and you realize how much more you could have done had you had access to all, to all that information. So uh, I'd say those are two, those are, those are the two, um, the, the two aspects that, that come to mind. Well, it might be better that we don't because, you know, a, a book is never finished. It's only abandoned. <laughs> and at some point you have to, you have to stop it. Yeah. yeah. So what's, what's the, what's next for you? What kind of other projects are, do you have in your, in your mind and in your heart? Uh, yeah, so I, um, uh, building on, on the book, I, I just finished a, a, a piece on, uh, on, on the term high life, uh, which I talk a bit about it in the book, uh, but I expanded that research and, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in how these terms, you know, how they traveled across different countries, uh, across national and, and cultural borders. So, um, I'm looking at that term high life and how it was used in Spain, but also, uh, in France, again, in, in Britain, and even in the U.S., I'm sure, I don't know, you know, if our listeners drink beer, I drink beer, yeah, <laughs> high life beer is, a, is an American type of beer. So um, that, and that. Um, we only, and this, we only drink uh, Cruz Campo from Seville. That's all we drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, high life became, it was a 19th century marketing term. Anyway, so that's something I'm looking at. And, and I've found it to be fascinating, really, just to, you know, to look at the, the 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 different connections that that exist between um, between different cities uh, in the 19th century, and and another project I'm working on is um, is postcards, which I also touch upon in the book. I, I you know when I was doing the research, I gathered all these postcards, and, and I couldn't you know they couldn't um, be part of the book. It was just too much, but I I put it all in the back burner, and and that's my second you know main research project now. I'll, um, collections of, of postcards. So I'll be looking at similar themes, but with this very fun uh, media that, you know, that 
These were images that people could touch, they could manipulate, they could write on, they could collect, they could put on their walls. So kind of like the, some people think the, the Instagram of, of the time, they became a, postcards were a, a fashion, they became a, collecting them became a trend, exchanging them. So I think there are lots of similarities with, um, with our, you know, how we, how we look at digital images today. And I, and I feel that any, you know, in order to be enthused by a research project, it has to connect with our, with our present concerns in some way. So that's my second, that's my second project there. Do you, do you have feelings about whether this is lost to us or whether it's alive and well? For example, you are in Chile. I am in California. Last time we spoke, you were in Florida. Two days ago, I interviewed a guy in Hungary. So I'm very local. But on the other hand, I don't feel like I go for walks to look at people, or at least I haven't since I was in college. Sometimes I go, my wife and I go and eat and we look at people, or sometimes I go to a farmer's market and I see some people. But is this lost or is it fine in the digital age? Or do you have any feelings? Um, I think nothing, nothing beats social interaction. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't say this. I should not, not, you know, we, now we live with, with COVID. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's another thing that's changed. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I guess, I think we need to continue. I think people watching is, it's not only uh, entertaining, but it also, it gives you a sense of belonging, right. Of, of, of kind of knowing how you relate to other people and, and learning about, about, not some, um, about, you know, our environments and how different people interact with their, with their surroundings. But at the same time, we can't escape the, the power of, of the, of the internet of being able to, you know, you're in California, I'm in Chile, uh, being able to do that is just, is just amazing. So I, in a way, uh, it reminds me of the 19th century, uh, when, you know, people were talking about what do we do with these images? How do we regulate these images? They're traveling from Madrid to, to, to Paris and, and, you know, we can't control them. I think we're, you know, we feel kind of that way now, right? How can we control this, you know, this immense public space that we have, um, I don't know. I guess we'll just figure it out. <laughs> Everyone does at the end. That's a very good point. I, we, we talk about the same thing in the 16th century with the printing press. And then look at this, this is out of control. And look at this, uh, Protestant Re- Reformation. And look at this. And uh, I, I think we're at the very beginning of the technology. And I'm sure many people will write dissertations about this time. Absolutely. Yeah. They will. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else we should talk about that I have forgotten? Uh, no, I think you. I think you covered a lot. You're, it was a great conversation. Yeah, I'm, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Vanessa, for this this very interesting book, and for our listeners, a book that really it's really nice to look at. It's it's an it's a very illustrated book because it's about print culture, and it's um, a delightful delightful read, full of uh, expert knowledge, but very available to the generalist. And uh, thank you so much for being part of New Books Network. Thank you, Christoph.